Hello and welcome to another episode of Raptor Rambles. My name's Jimmy and I will be your host once again. And firstly, I must apologise because any of you that tune in regularly may have noticed that I did actually miss an episode off. Uh, That's my fault, just life got in the way basically so yeah i was meant to release or we were meant to release one on the 22nd of may and we didn't so i'm really really sorry i have to make another apology as well because i'm aware now that some of you may have been trying to download the podcast from apple and we're apparently still having some headaches with people being able to download it from apple but also a friend of mine got in touch to say she was struggling to get downloads from google as well now i have to admit i'm not very good with technology so i have to get someone to help me uh edit this and and upload it and and yeah get it make sure it gets onto these platforms so we're working on it and we will try and make it better um or or certainly slicker so apologies about that now on to this episode so i've gone a little bit left field with this and in this episode we are joined by lauren mcgow who is a falconer from the United States of America, but also she's an anthropologist. And I was really, really keen to talk to Lauren because I have a real passion for the cultural aspects of humans and birds of prey and and the connections that we might have. And obviously falconry is the field sport of hunting with a trained bird of prey, and it goes back thousands of years. Now, Lauren her big passion when it comes to falconry is golden eagles and this meant it took her all the way out to mongolia to spend over 12 months with a nomadic tribe uh, learning the ways of training golden eagles in order to hunt and be part of their their nomadic lifestyle so it was really really interesting to hear Lauren's insight into what what is a fascinating uh, community and and culture. So we talked to her about that. We obviously talk a little bit about falconry itself and the keeping of birds of prey and the difference between the UK and America and a little bit about conservation and how falconry and the role that falconry can possibly play in conservation of birds of prey around the world. And to be honest, there's no one who does it really better than the Americans when it comes to using falconry techniques uh, for for raptor conservation. They really, really have got it, got it nailed on over there. So it was really, really nice to talk to Lauren, and I hope you enjoy listening to her talk about her passion for golden eagles and everything that is involved with her life and falconry. On the notes, I'll share Lauren's... Uh, social media feeds and so you can you can follow her because she's very active on things like instagram and and she's just really interesting to follow some some of the stuff she gets up to uh as well as that obviously i need to update you on what's going on with raptor aid obviously it's very busy we've got some nice weather here over in the uk it's nearly the middle of june and so we're well into the raptor monitoring season so i'm here there and everywhere north wales uh, Gloucestershire. Uh, I'm about to drive off up to Scotland for five days to work with the Highland Raptor Study Group. And hopefully any of you follow the Instagram and Facebook feeds for Raptor Aid will, will be enjoying some of the pictures that I put up of some of the monitoring that I get up to. And I'll make sure I, uh, over the next week I get some stuff up for you for yeah the trip to Scotland. Uh, not much else really is going on though because COVID, even though things have relaxed, we haven't bothered with a Peregrine watch this year just because it just seemed the sensible thing not to really bring volunteers together and people close, sharing binoculars and telescopes. But I'm very pleased to say that the Chester Peregrines have had another successful season. They've laid four eggs and hatched four eggs. And the chicks, I think, are pretty much fledged. I was in Chester today, actually, and went for a little look. And the uh, there was... There was yeah, no youngsters to be seen around the shot tower. But I did see, I heard in the distance, first of all, a peregrine screeching and calling and then noticed one very far away down the canal chasing a, a, a flock of pigeons about harassing them. So hopefully that's one of the one of the youngsters honing its uh, its flight skills. We have also got 
uh, we this year will be leading or I will be leading our field study council courses for anyone who's interested in monitoring or just generally identification of birds of prey here in Britain. We've actually got three this year with the field studies council. So we're running the usual one at Malham Tarn and then we've got one in North Wales in Conway and then a third one in Shropshire at the, the head office at Pre Preston Montford. So if you go on the Field Studies Council uh, website, you should be able to find uh, yeah a, uh, the courses and the dates there. The, th the first one, I think, is the middle of July. Then we've got one at the end of July, and then the other one is beginning of August. I think I've got that right. So, yeah, if you're stuck, though, and you're really interested in that, drop me a message and I'll send you some further details about that. Uh, other than that, we've not really been doing any talks um, or any school visits, obviously. Uh, and we have got some changes afoot uh, with Raptor Aid. So uh, hopefully towards the end of the year, I'll be launching launching something a little bit different for us and a, a different path for us to uh, to follow with the charity but one final thing i must say anyone who has donated to raptor aid for the philippine eagle foundation massive thank you last time i checked we'd raised over eight thousand pounds for the philippine eagle foundation which is absolutely incredible they are over the moon with with all the support they've received from here in the uk and um, that money will be sent over to them as soon as it's available from from the crowdfunding page and we will uh yeah we really really can't thank you enough for that and i actually i have to make a little uh announcement or thank you to a young man um by the name of sam grindle who has recently climbed snowden well done sam uh, i think he's just turned seven years old seven or eight years old and he climbed Snowden and fundraised for Raptor Aid because he loves birds of prey so much. And he raised uh, over £800, which is absolutely unbelievable. And what I want to say, as, as someone who, who set up and, uh, and runs a small charity that is Raptor Aid, just thank you because that money will go a long, long way um, to, to doing different things for for birds of prey and educating people on birds of prey and and their conservation and it will go a long way with with the the future plans we've got which I yeah sorry I just can't tell you about it yet until it's all been signed off but uh but yeah Sam thank you so much for fundraising for us if anyone else wants to do anything like that get your thinking caps on drop us a message I'm sure we'll can chat with you um yeah we we really really appreciate it uh it's 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 absolutely wonderful anyway enough of me jabbering on let's get into this episode i hope you enjoy listening to lauren mcgow uh, the golden eagle falconer from the united states and anthropologist Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Raptor Rambles. It kind of feels like I haven't recorded one of these for ages, and it might be because I cheated and we we had one recording that I did for the Philippine Eagle Foundation fundraiser. So I cheated and released that as part of an a, a, a episode for Raptor Rambles. And then I think I might have missed last we were supposed to release one maybe a couple of weeks ago and that's my bad, but it's, it's busy, busy. Um, but anyway, I've got a real treat for this week. So we are talking to, or I am talking to Lauren McGow, who is a falconer, but also uh, she ha is a postdoc researcher as well. And the reason I wanted to get Lauren on, I, we were just talking off air. I've um, obviously got a background in captive birds of prey and so still lots of friends that are involved in it. And so I followed Lauren's work with golden eagles in particular and eagles in general from afar. So also knowing that she's been and spent time out in Mongolia and she's got a real interest in the cultural aspect of birds of prey and humans and the anthropological aspect, then this is just as much a treat for me really than hopefully the listeners so Lauren welcome thank you for thank you for joining me 
Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to talk eagles and culture and <laughs> wherever we happen to ramble. <laughs> well, yeah, it normally is. It's quite fitting the title because it normally is a ramble. Now, it's normal. Anyone who listens to this will be used to it now. With I tend to, by all means, Lauren, I tend to put a very open question. We always start the same way, and then you're welcome to just ramble on as, as much as you want, and I'll jump in and we can go off piste as, as much as you like. But I always start at the beginning, and what got young Lauren, or it might have been an older Lauren, what got you interested in nature, wildlife, but birds of prey in particular? Where, where did it all begin? Yeah, so I've always had an interest in nature as far back as I can remember, and predators in particular. But so I didn't even know falconry existed until I was 14. And one thing I like about the UK is that the public seems to have a pretty good awareness of falconry and that it exists and the history of it and what it is. Whereas when I started in the US in the year 2000, I mean, I, I didn't even I didn't even know it was a thing. It wasn't until I like many people stumbled across a book in the library. It was Stephen Bodio's A Rage for Falcons, still one of my favorite falconry books. And I read it and thought, oh my God, that sounds like the coolest thing ever. I have to do it. And I think many falconers will tell you that they were born falconers. They just didn't know it until that triggering event. Um, but what, what I also really remember is enjoying bird watching, but it not being quite enough because the golden eagle on a soar was just so far away. And then enjoying watching them in the zoo, but that also not being enough because they're just sitting there in the zoo and really craving some interaction with the wild and just being so excited that I could connect with nature through falconry. So I started when I was 14. Um, I was terrible at it. Definitely didn't have any natural intuition for it. I'm definitely somebody that just through brute force of doing it year after year got better, but I, it's given my life meaning. I really truly enjoy birds of prey and falconry. As you know, I mean, one thing I love about our sport is that, you know, you find your niche within it and mine in particular is golden eagles, but I can spend a lifetime flying goldens and they'll still surprise me. It's still exciting. It still leaves me you know, out of breath and open mouth in the field, totally excited about what I've just seen. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm just very thankful I live in a world with birds of prey and falconry and that I can practice it. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I was sort of a similar age when I, when I first got into captive birds of prey and it was, it was, yeah, I was kind of actually a bit of a kindred spirit really, because that was very much the same with me on the farm. I'd, we'd, I'd watch the buzzards. I remember a pair of barn owls vividly that I used to watch on my godfather's farm. And yeah, it was always wanting that, that bit more. And, and, um, and when I, yeah, when I was very much like you introduced, I was looking, my dad introduced me to a falconer through farming connections that, that he knew a farmer that kept Harris hawks. And um, so, yeah, it was through that way. But uh, yeah, that's, I, I should point out or mention to anyone listening um, that there's a bit of a difference, isn't there, between how birds of birds, falconry is obviously the same. And, and I'll let you just explain if you want a little bit about the sport of falconry but there's different legislation here in in england compared or there's very little legislation here in england on who can own a bird of prey compared to america so did you so for instance here in the uk you could go online and for want of a better way buy a bird of prey with limited experience but in america it's very strict isn't it with who can own a bird of prey and so just touch on that was it difficult for you to to get into falconry and or were you, were you okay? Was it quite straightforward because there was someone local? Or how does it work? No, that's a great point. It is very different. Uh, we're the most heavily regulated field sport uh, in the United States, falconry. And it, it has its pros and cons, the system. But I had to, gosh, so you have to pass a test, a written exam on bird of prey care and general falconry principles you need to build an aviary and have it inspected. And most importantly, you need to find 
a qualified falconer that agrees to mentor you. I was very lucky in that regard. I so I was living in Oklahoma at the time, and uh, <laughs> still not a lot came up on Google in the year two thousand, but. Uh, I emailed the president of Oklahoma Falconers Association and he, his name was Rob Rainey and he had three daughters, none of whom were interested in falconry. So it was really nice that, uh, you know, I, my parents weren't into falconry, his kids weren't into falconry. And so we could connect and he could teach me um, how to, so we trapped a red-tailed hawk out of the wild uh, at the time in Oklahoma, it was a requirement that your first bird was either a passage red-tailed hawk or a kestrel. The reasoning being uh, for listeners that aren't familiar that <clears throat> the idea is you could try out falconry, train this bird, and if you decided that the sport wasn't for you or it wasn't a good fit, you could always release it back to the wild. And of course it would quickly revert back to its wild state. Um, which is a nice pro, uh, but I flew that first red-tailed hawk I had for five years, and then I released her when I went to university. I mean, that's th this is where I think personally, and and um, I think that falconry really and and captive bird of prey keeping really misses out here in the UK because you've you've got this obviously all and most probably 99% of the birds really that are being used in, in captivity in Britain, 99.9% .9 even are captive bred, which there's nothing wrong with that. But I think Falcon, because we don't have the system that, that you have out in America, we miss out on the, the sort of the conservation angle, the real benefit and difference that I think falconers can make. And I think if you look at, the great falconers, if you look globally at the great falconers of the world that have made a real difference to conservation, probably most of them are going to be American. You know, your Tom Cades, your Bodios, there's, there's, a, there's a whole, you'll be able to list a lot more than me. And I'm, I'm not saying that Britain doesn't have um, amazing falconers that were great conservationists, but I always, I've always felt that with that licensing system in place that you've got personally, you know, we've got species here in, in the UK, like Merlins, for instance, that are real conservation concern. You know, mm. they're struggling in huge areas. And given, you know, a brood of Merlins, if you can propagate them and fly them in captivity for a few years under, you know, falconers and then release them, they've got a lot better chance of survival. But because we don't have that licensing system in place, I don't think we could ever get around that but maybe I think as well I don't know how much you know about this I've always found as well I remember when I first got into falconry and then I wanted to go into conservation a lot of the old boys that I still work with now were very much oh you're into captive birds of prey we don't really want you mixing with wild birds of prey because falconers are bad and that's what that was that was a big stigma that's sometimes still about in in the UK, do you? I, I don't suppose you have that at all in America. Do you have that at all in America? Is there a stigma? We, it was definitely stronger in the past, particularly between rehabilitators and falconers proper. Mm -hmm. But I'm pleased to say I'm seeing a lot more crossover, and I work with rehabbers too. It's it's getting better. I I see some collaborations, and I do you find that in the UK? Is it a lot more? working together yeah to, i don't know i think without going into it in too much detail because we could talk it's a whole different topic <laughs> but there is at the moment there's quite a divide in certain aspects of conservation and birds of prey and it often it is often separated or the wedge is being driven by field sports such as grouse shooting with the hen harriers or um, lowland game shooting with buzzards or red kites and I think that from me as a someone who spends a lot of time monitoring birds of prey and conservation means that when I look at falconer friends on Facebook and listen to what people are talking about and read it then they'd rather align themselves with the field sports which is fine then and there's still a divide between field sports and conservation which I don't think you really get as much in certain countries like 
to, I can't speak firsthand for Americans or what goes on in America. It's just from what I, I see on, uh, and read about. So, yeah, I think I've always felt and still feel that Falconers in the UK could bring so much more to the table. Mm. And, and you've just touched on a great one is there, rehabilitation. And a great example of that is peregrine falcons. And we have a lot of peregrine falcons now nesting in urban environments. We often get juveniles, fledglings, crash landing. Sometimes they injure themselves. And it might be something simple as a sprained wing, but they can't go straight back to the wild. And I've heard it so many times where this bird is just stuck in an aviary, a rescue center, and it just is going to have a miserable life where when they come to release it, it's going to be dead. And, it, you know, you consign it to its own death. Whereas falconers can do so much for that bird, but there's there still can be a big divide and people don't join the dots. So, yeah, sorry, this is your interview. <laughs> but that's a, that's how it is in, in England or Britain, sorry, in many ways still. So we've got some catching up to do. No, that's so true. Well, so for an, as an example, um, in the U.S., it's illegal to breed golden eagles in captivity. It's kind of it's a complicated legislative system, and it's golden eagles. It wasn't so much intentional. It's just kind of caught up in the law. So we can't breed golden eagles. So I almost exclusively fly rehab eagles um, because just like with peregrines if a young golden eagle comes into rehab man you can't just fix whatever outward ailment it has and then kick it out the door if it hasn't learned how to hunt and soar on its own so i'm we have a growing number of rehabbers that will lend out young golden eagles for two years to falconers to give them that hunting and soaring opportunity um, before the release back to the wild. So I, I have a bird right now that I will release in a year and I, I really enjoy it. It's, it's harder than I thought it would be to actually let them go. <laughs> Cause usually they just start to become really proficient hunters when I have to let them go. But it, it's, it's a cool thing. I I'm, I'm glad I'm able to do. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I was a pretty rubbish falconer, I'll be honest with you. I, my, my background really was doing displays and shows and and what have you. And, and so, yeah, I, I don't have much of a falconry pedigree. And just, just to touch on, because there may be people listening and going, what, what do you mean? Um, so obviously falconry is the sport of hunting with a bird of prey, you know, out and out. That That is what falconry is with a long, long heritage, history and heritage dating back thousands of years never mind hundreds of years so a lot of people here in the UK I think associate falconry with medieval times and you know mm. uh, knights and horses and castles but it goes way way back um, into Asia and China and beyond anyway so that's 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 what falconry is and that's what Lauren does properly with golden eagles but you've probably come on to it really nicely there talking about training birds using falconry techniques and releasing them it's wonderful to hear what you you do and that must be so rewarding but obviously that's very much like what they do in Mongolia and I know you've got a lot of experience um with that so why don't we how did you end up out in was it was it Mongolia was it Kazakhstan? It was. yeah okay how did how did how did that come about and explain a bit about that well so similarly to me finding out about falconry from a library book I also stumbled upon this old black and white photo of a guy on a mountain on horseback covered in furs holding a huge golden eagle with a, a fox skin tethered to the behind the the horse saddle and just thinking like oh my god that that's a real photo that looks like something out of a fantasy novel does that actually happen and at that time you could put in mongolian eagle falconry into google and nothing would come up you know, I was starved for information about it. And I lucked out that guy, Steve Bodio, whose book I read that got me hooked on falconry. He was writing, he was one of the first Western falconers to go to Mongolia after the fall of the Soviet Union. And he was writing um, a book about that. And I wrote him a letter, like an actual like snail mail letter. And he wrote me back and he gave me 
tons of useful information, his, the, the contact information for his guide in Mongolia, what he saw there. He sent me a copy of his manuscript. So he was super helpful in orienting me to the place and getting some context. Um, I, when I was in high school, so I, th this interest just grew and grew. And of course, in the United States, we have a rich history of, say, grouse hawking, but no eagle falconry. So I couldn't even find an eagle falconer in the U.S. to talk to. There was just nothing. Um, <clears throat> so I, well, I spent some time in Scotland, which was really helpful because the UK does have a really nice tradition of eagles. But I, my super kind dad, so my parents never have understood this, but they've always supported me, which I just can't thank them enough. Uh, so my dad took me to Mongolia um, when I was uh, my last year of high school. So when I was 18. Wow. And cool dad. we went there for, yeah, it was, it was so nice of him because it was winter freezing. He's not into birds. He doesn't want to freeze in the middle of nowhere in Mongolia. He just did it because I was so into it. So I was able to visit some eagle hunters. We spent two weeks out there, had a great time. You can't really see a whole lot in two weeks, but it was just enough of a foundation uh, for me to start making plans to go back long term. And <clears throat> I would, I, I applied for, when I was about to graduate university, I applied for funding to go live in Mongolia for a year to do, to apprentice to an eagle falconer. Uh, and one hot piece of advice I can give to anybody looking for funding, particularly from Fulbright, this organization, is that if you pick a country nobody else wants to go to, there's not a whole lot of competition. <laughs> I think there were there were eight applications for Mongolia and they had five awards. So it, it was high odds <laughs> that we were able to get. But they funded me to go back for a year. And so through, that was in 2009. So through Steve's help and the friends I made on the ground with my dad, I was able to set that up. Um, and so my idea was I wanted to, in anthropology, they call it participant observation, but I wanted to do everything that an apprentice eagle hunter does. So trap my own bird, train it, hunt foxes with it, release it, do the full cycle and can get a little complicated. So the very traditional eagle falconry in Mongolia is they use wild trap passage birds. And with golden eagles, I use the word passage more loosely. So I mean, one, two, three, maybe four years old, but an immature golden eagle at any rate. And they trap them. So according to, to those Kazakhs, the golden eagles migrate from Siberia, bottleneck through Western Mongolia, through the Altai as they travel to China. So they try to catch, they try to trap these passage birds when they come through Mongolia every October. So <clears throat> I was able to, I visited, I hired a, uh, a guide and a driver and we visited a lot of different eagle hunters. So I was able to meet one that I really clicked with, got along with, he had daughters that were my age that helped that I, so I could chat to them too. And he agreed to help me trap an eagle and, and, and hunt with it in the, in the traditional way that his family always had. I, which I had a, my gosh, it's a whole story in itself. Cliff Notes is we trapped a second year golden and um, we ended up catching 10 foxes over a bunch of heroin. Um, and it was great. But one thing I have noticed is in the media, they often portray people taking ISs out of the nest. Okay. And that's something that irks me because in my view, that has been spurred by the festival, which the festival was started to bring tourism to Western Mongolia, which is one of the main sources of the GDP there. It's huge. It brings a lot of income to families, but 
those Ayas Goldens are of course much more tolerant of crowds and cameras and can basically do a bird show at this festival, but they're not good for hunting in the traditional sense. Yeah. So tourism itself has changed that area. But if you get away from Olgi, which is the provincial capital where the festival is, really out in the in the boonies, as we'd say, that's where the passage eagle falconry and the really traditional um, uh, tradition survives. Because they also, they it's really beautiful. They feel, so they'll trap a passage eagle and they'll fly it for some number of years, depending on how, how good of a hunter the eagle is, how well it clicks with the eagle falconer, say one, two, six, seven years. But after you start getting into five, six, seven years, there's big social pressure to release that eagle, especially if it was a good hunter, because they want that eagle to go on and pass on its genes and make more good eagles for future generations of eagle hunters to fly. And I was quite reading um, Watson's book on eagles in the UK. Yeah. He found that if an eagle survives to maturity, the average lifespan, something like 32 years, it's really high. So I love this idea of these eagles in the Altai, if they have similar lifespans that, you know, young eagle has this odd detour for four or five years of its life where it hunts with an eagle hunter, an eagle falconer, and then it's released and it still has 25, 30 years where it's migrating from Siberia to China, living in the Altai, hunting foxes and marmots. And, you know, we're, we're that whole cultural tradition is just a strange part of that eagle's adolescence. I, I love that idea. I mean, there's there's so many things I need to, so many questions that are just moving <laughs> around in my brain. That that's wonderful. I mean, it's really interesting to hear um, firsthand experience because, as you said, yeah, if you'd have asked me, I you know I've looked at followed um, Mongolian falconry to some extent, but yeah, if someone had said to me, where do they get their eagles from, I'd have probably said, oh yeah, and Ayas, they you know, and that's what the that's what what I suppose you see in the media. Um, clearly, it's you know it's 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 not true. But I'll just go back to sort of well, I won't go back to the very beginning. But I mean, I think we kind of glossed over it. But that's so. In when you went out there for your one year apprentice, how old were you? How old how old were you when you did that? So it was two thousand nine. I was um, I just. 22 or 23. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a big deal because Mon I, I again, I've never been to Mongolia, but so I'm just going off firsthand, you know, or sorry, what I've read and seen on, and it's remote. It, you know, it's not like, you know, going to Australia for a backpack for a year backpacking or, you know, you know, this, this is a remote place and you're obviously a, a young woman going out how did you find how obviously from the two weeks that you experienced you obviously got a good reception you you enjoyed it what was it like when you yeah and and obviously you touched on going around families and eagle hunters to see who you clicked with which obviously that helps massively but what was it like but you must have been I'm assuming you were the first woman to go out there and say right I'm going to live out here for a year and and um, learn to be an eagle falconer how did that how did that work how did it go well it obviously went well you enjoyed it but yeah it's a big deal they definitely thought I was a very strange person <laughs> <laughs> yes so to be an eagle hunter in Mongolia you have to be a nomadic herder their falconry is intimately tied to the herding because you know you're herding in a really remote place you you're taking your goat, sheep, camels, horses to places where there's good grazing. And just in the act of doing that, you get to see what the wild eagles are up to, where they are. You see what foxes are doing and their habits. Because this isn't like, as you might imagine, difficult kind of falconry that takes a lot of orchestration. Especially in the winter, it's a very harsh landscape. And the area doesn't support that many foxes to begin with. So you really have to, they call it reading the white book of the steppe. You have to have great 
like tracking skills and intimate knowledge of the wild lives of these animals around you. But anyway, uh, yeah, so I was not in a village. I was spring and summer. They live in yurts. Yep. Uh, they call them gares uh, in yep. Mongolian. And then in the fall and winter, they live in these adobe type houses. Um, both place where there's good grazing that time of year for their herd animals. And because the land isn't arable, there's no farming and it's really expensive for them to buy fruits and vegetables. So they get virtually everything they need from their animals. Uh, they eat every part of the animal. Cause if you're, that's one way to get all the vitamins and minerals you need is if you eat all the innards that you, that other cultures might get from fruits and vegetables. So it was, it was fascinating. <clears throat> I, I had anticipated it being difficult to get them to want to take me on as an apprentice, but really because being a nomadic herder is such a difficult lifestyle, most of their kids are going to the cities and establishing their lives in the cities, getting jobs in the cities. So I felt that they were just happy to pass on their tradition to anyone, even a weird you know white girl from america yeah so, so they were very welcoming another thing i like about their falconry is it's very much a meritocracy it's not like say medieval falconry in europe where you had to be a part of the aristocracy yep you know famously to have access to certain species out there it's truly believed if you have it inside you to want to interact with these birds of prey they're going to give you a shot you know you should be able to do it <clears throat> so i enjoyed that um but it's it is a very harsh lifestyle uh it's not the weather isn't too bad until december and that's when the brutal cold hits so the way that they survive out there is every fall in preparation for the winter they'll slaughter 15 to 20 goats and sheep and one horse, usually a horse that's not good for riding or, you know, they don't want its genes necessarily passed yeah. on. So it's this big celebration to prepare meat for the upcoming winter. And yeah, we had a whole, <laughs> free, whole little separate adobe house full of all this meat and all the, everything had a purpose. It's really quite ingenious how you know the each organ they would use for a certain kind of dish or ailment or yeah it's it's a it's an amazing culture one of the few true nomadic societies left um in kazakhstan proper stalin forcibly settled the nomads and really did his best to stamp out falconry which he saw as bourgeois in mongolia was protected by the Altai and nobody was that interested in that region. So it escaped relatively unscathed, which is why we see this really traditional form of falconry persist. And I spent some time in Kazakhstan, but really what you see in Kazakhstan now are young people trying to bring back a tradition rather than having continued it unbroken. I'll stop there for now. I mean, it's, uh, it's, Fascinating, and honestly, Lauren, there's there's so many things, so many questions that buzz around in my my head. Um, when you two two things that came into my mind, well, three questions actually, but probably we'll get stuck on the first one. Um, but talking about the um, the actual falconry that you're participating in, it, it really. I'm jealous and I'm not even, I was never, as I mentioned earlier, I was never a big falconer. It, do you struggle with, well, I think if you were a British falconer, you probably would, but in America, do you struggle now with sometimes with the, with the falconry that you practice, that it's not as true as, as what you experienced out in Mongolia or does, do you try and do you think it actually makes you a better falconer because you are trying to recreate that, you know, the being as as true to falconry as you possibly can, which clearly the Mongolians and the Kazakhs are, they are because it's life and death, essentially falconry for them. 
I'm so glad I learned from them because I use so many of their techniques in my Eagle Falconry in the US. I've also noticed, so of course, I'm, I'm not the only one, many European falconers, Eagle Falconers have gone to that region and I've also noticed some techniques incorporated. So it's, their falconry is incredible in Mongolia, but it is very physically demanding to a high degree. So the way logistically that their falconry works, so there's no, hairs are really difficult to come by and they go underground and in crevasses a lot and they're really hard to get a clean flight on. So foxes are primarily what you're hunting. The wild eagles definitely hunt them. Uh, nests show lots of fox parts, big part of their diet. So what you do is ideally you're on horseback and you ride to the top of the mountain and then you've got a buddy that's going to ride his horse through the valley below you, make a lot of noise, see if he can scare up a fox. No, there's no close flights. These foxes are super savvy. Whenever I have seen one flushed, it's this rust colored spot scooting along far in the distance. And this is why you need a passage eagle. They are difficult long distance flights. And that's why you're on the mountaintop. So as long as you can have some kind of a height advantage, the eagle's got a shot. And the foxes will always try to run uphill. So of course, as soon as the fox gets above the eagle, it's game over. So it's, it's and because that area can't support that many foxes, if you're out hunting all day, and even if it's a great spot, you might only get one to three slips three would be a three opportunities would be a banner day so it's you're out there sunrise to sunset and you're living for those 30 seconds of action where things happen and the other thing i think some falconers will uh sympathize with this that makes it really hard that, that stressed me out i got a little better at it but because of the distances involved so you're sitting at the mountaintop and you might take the hood off your eagle is you have to judge in that split second where when they want to, to go, whether it's actually a fox out there that you can't see or whether they might just want to go and kind of hang out, you know, go fly off. Yeah. So it's this, it's, oh my gosh, it's a split second decision because if it is a fox that you just can't quite see, that might be the only one that you see all day yeah. but if it's not then you might have to chase your eagle for a half hour down the mountain as you go and get her back so it's man it's a it's a thing when it works though what i love about it when it all comes together it's like waiting on from a different perspective because the distances are so big and you've usually got this height advantage you're seeing an eagle stoop dramatically from above so it's beautiful in that way. And they're so, the fox is really a, a great quarry for them. The foxes will do all kinds of hair-like maneuvers to get, to get away. And they usually do, of course. Um, and then not to get too much off topic, but I did quickly want to say, like the IS eagles being more of a tourist thing and a myth, wolf hunting, totally a myth. Another thing that irks me, uh, doesn't actually happen in so I spent two years there collectively yep. and during that time I only saw wolves twice and the eagles wanted nothing to do with them they're heavily persecuted so they're they do everything they can to avoid human presence and anything being near any human settlement and eagles as we know are really intelligent these passage eagles are not keen to try to grab a huge animal that can defend itself like a wolf. So that's that's just some sensationalism that the media likes to repeat because it sounds cool, but the reality is it doesn't actually happen. But fox hunting is incredible anyway. There's no need to really exaggerate it. Well, um, but yeah, so. <laughs> no, no, I was just gonna say for people listening in, obviously that don't know a great deal about, about falconry and um, and obviously the, the, the hunting um, of, of the foxes out in, in Mongolia. What's the value of a fox then to, so you catch a fox with your golden eagle, what's the value of that fox to a family, to an eagle falconer? It used to be 20, 30, 40 years ago, they could sell the fox pelt for 
a fair amount of money yep. and it would aid in the family's income. The, the price on fox pelts has really dropped dramatically. So now it's purely, it, they make clothing out of them. Uh, so of course, warm winter clothing. And you have probably seen the famous Eagle Hunter's hat. It's mm -hmm. called a, a Bushbach Tamak. And it's made purely out of the front arm fur of the foxes. The reason being that's supposedly the softest fur. And it takes quite a few front arms to make a whole hat. So it's a status symbol in that if you have one says, hey, I have caught enough foxes to yeah. make this. But truly the reason I, I believe that I have seen that there are eagle hunters now, it's really no financial gain from the pelts. It's, it's perpetuating a tradition that they're very proud of. It's fascinating. And uh, what, into going going to the meat aspect of it though, and and living out there and and using the the whole animal, did 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 that make from you from a personal point of view? Did that make you change the way you looked at life? And, and this don't mean this to be a really deep question, but obviously we live in a very consumer driven world where you know everything's only a click away or a you know whatever you need if you look at you know in a western world certainly from you, you yeah if you're you've got you're lucky enough then then that's how you live your life um did that has any of that sort of impacted your life obviously falconry has impacted it massively but the fact that they literally use everything and they don't waste a thing it did <clears throat> it made me realize also how most cultures in history have been monocultures with food. They only eat a few things and how lucky we are to literally have access to food from South America or Australia or you know, any, any fruit that tickles our fancy. Yeah. So my diet there was almost, your diet's really 90% mutton. Yep. So it's the same thing. And I, I started, really to eat just because my body needed it for the cold and all the calories you're expending, but there's not really any flavoring that they do. So it's, it, it was an odd experience for me because I, I, I ate what we had and you know, the area really only truly supports goats and sheep and, um, and I ate because I had to, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a pleasurable thing. Like it is, yeah. like it can be here. But having said that, they, they make, food really is a big part of their culture. And for anybody that does go to Mongolia, one of the biggest pieces of advice I can give is to actually eat the food. It, it means a lot to them if you make the effort to eat something that might be unappealing to you in your culture. Um, so uh, as an example, it's considered really rude there to give a piece, a lean piece of meat to somebody. It's really, <clears throat> it's kind and it's, it's honorable to give someone a super fatty piece of meat, even if it's mostly fat. So like I'd be out there and they might hand me this huge blob of fat with like a little sliver of meat on it and that's them telling me like oh we we're honoring you <laughs> i'm looking at this like oh my god i can't how am i supposed to eat this but if you just try it the that was one of the the most effective quickest way for me to bond uh with them where they started accepting me uh but it, it puts it in perspective for sure the access that we have and how wasteful we can be um yeah, yeah i mean I've, I've experienced that firsthand with visiting the philippines and living out with a remote community mm. um out there and they couldn't first of all they couldn't do enough for you to make you what or myself and my friend to make us welcome the food like i'm not a very good cook you know get it out the freezer chuck it in the oven and i might still burn it the food, you know, even if it was basic pork, you know, uh, rice, it was unbelievable. 
it was, you know, and I'm not saying that because we were out there and we were hungry, so we'd eat anything. It really was. And, and I think you find that with a lot of indigenous, oh, I, I, watching TV and listening to you. And um, I think you probably find that with a lot of indigenous communities is, is um, yeah, they, they know how to connect with people. Um, and I think if you connect with them, my experience is that you, you're all the richer for it, really. Um, so that's 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 really nice to really nice to hear. Now I wanted to ask you about going back to the Eagles. <clears throat> um, you're talking about the the sort of the ages and and uh, trapping them and then releasing them, um, and obviously touching on how you, they want them to. Be, obviously, they want to improve. Well, they know that the the stronger Eagles are going to improve the gene pool. Is there any conservation work? Oh, obviously, that's conservation in itself. But is there any monitoring of that bit taking place or is it purely just based that you know of or is it purely just based on you they know that these eagles are going to survive because they've survived so far and they're successful hunters do you know of any work being done i know of some recent work which i was really excited to see um for anyone that's a member of the raptor research foundation i think it was 2019 there's a paper by um, David Ellis and uh, Nimba Bayatbor okay. that had that surveyed golden eagles in the Altai Mountains of Mongolia, and I think it's really hard to know numbers, but there's roughly 300 eagle hunters in the region, eagle falconers. So I think the traditional eagle falconry is very sustainable. I do worry a little bit with taking ISs from the nest for for the festival. I don't it's hard. I don't know how many are taken and it's in a region again that doesn't support that many animals. I don't know how much what the threshold is for a negative impact. So there is some work being done, I think, by those two authors um, to try and determine this, uh, which I would be really interested to see um i'm just because, uh, yeah, yeah i mean and it's just yeah. i was just gonna say knowing the tech not not necessarily technology and gps tags but even simple things like color color rings and you know camera traps on there yeah. i just think it will be so fascinating to know if you could if you're looking if someone was lucky enough to be able to discover that these birds that are being released what obviously where they go these birds are migrating as you as you touched on but but yeah, whether they're enter when they're entering the breeding population, the longevity of how long they're lasting, it just yeah. there's so many things I think will be really fascinating. And yeah, I just wondered whether anyone was out there. But I, I actually I've just rejoined the Raptor Research Foundation. In fact, I've got the journal here, the latest one here in front of me. So I'm going to have to look back for that paper now. So I'll, I'll uh, I've yeah, I'll, I'll have to check that out because yeah, that's that sort of research I think is would be yeah fa fascinating i just wondered if you you knew about it so okay have you any plans of going back out there visiting again what man so i've been lucky i have gosh i've been there so many times now i so i did the two years there through grant work and then i got hired by gopro to go out there and help them put gopros on the backs of eagles they have a little mini documentary from that out called eagle hunters in a new world Brilliant. just on youtube um i went with this american news show called 60 minutes um to help them do a, like a nightly news type program um i went with um a, a family that had adopted a child a kazakh child an american family and he wanted to go back and visit the culture his wow. his that he came from and um so i've is i've been really lucky uh since those trips they've all i've, I've had these these opportunities to go back and um, and get get paid for it which is great and i know i never thought that would actually happen <laughs> well that's, that's that's brilliant what okay let's let's come back to america then what so you you touched on what one of your eagles um, that you're flying at the moment? What 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 birds have you got in your muse at the moment? What what birds are, uh, are you you working with? Yeah, so I've got this golden eagle who was um, 
she was found with lead poisoning in Wyoming. Big issue, of course, um, yeah. as a first year bird. Um, so she, we just had a, she was slow to get started. Very, very unfit, of course, very um, ignorant about jackrabbits, but we, we had a, she caught, <laughs> she caught 37 jackrabbits this last season. So super proud of her. Mm -hmm. um, and next year we'll start soaring, which is another important component that can take them some time for young eagles anyway to learn. Um, and my other eagle is a Varose eagle. Also something I, I never, it was a very pleasant surprise. She is part of a captive breeding project to help safeguard the species here in the US, but wasn't interested in breeding. So the thought was, well, if she can fly and soar and hunt and exercise all her natural instincts, that might put her in a good mindset for breeding. And I've flown her a year now. Oh my gosh, one of my favorite birds. They're so cool, these Varose eagles. Very non-aggressive, sweet eagle, very loyal. She'll fall, I've had her follow me overhead for two hours on a soar, which it's crazy. Usually, especially with say a falcon, when they're overhead, you're like, you know, hurrying to try to flush something before maybe they get bored and fly off. But she's super loyal and really gorgeous stoops on jackrabbits. Um, so she caught 11 jackrabbits um, this last season. And it's, I'm, I really, it makes me, it inspires me to want to go watch them in the wild now. And I've seen what a captive bird can do. Those wild ones are gonna be incredible. I'd love to go watch some wild rose eagles in Tanzania or South Africa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she'll I mean, go I'm, back into the breeding project next year. Oh, brilliant. Okay, so you've got the two birds. Obviously, and, and, and some people may be listening that follow you. You've also got a dog. Have you got one dog? Two, two dogs? I, I know I've seen this dog. I do. So you've got um, dogs that you work with with the birds as well. Um, so, I mean, we probably haven't got time to touch on that, but yeah, I should, I should just, I just wanted to mention that because if anyone wonders why the dogs crop up on social media and also, you know, who doesn't love dogs i'm a i'm a big dog person so that's uh, so that's great what's uh, what's next then lauren what are you in your obviously is, is it the close season now then the season for the falconry season over where you are correct uh i'll start again in september so similar to the uk yeah yeah i yeah something i've been working on for a little while that um, the pandemic has thrown a wrench in is I would love to go fly a wedge-tailed eagle in Australia for rehabilitation. I just, there's very little about them in the literature and they're, I would love to see what they would do in a falconry situation. And uh, so I, I'm trying to arrange staying in Australia for a season. <laughs> wow. Well, it's funny you should mention that because I I've never met him, but there's a chap who who I've only just followed. I kn I knew about him because he's we've got a mutual friend, um, but there's a chap in Australia um, who monitors Wedgetail, Simon Cherryman, and I've just found mm. him on Instagram. So last night I was watching all his his videos and clips of him up trees and 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 what have you monitoring, um, yeah, Wedgetail eagles and what a bird, what a bird um but yeah wow good well good good luck with that um definitely okay i always finish with the set well i don't know if i always finish with the same question sometimes i probably forget but i'm gonna have to ask you lauren because of what a cool falconry bird life you've led if you any advice one piece of advice it doesn't have to be one it can be two pieces of advice you give a budding falconer or raptor biologist what what would it be put you on the spot i would say all right so for the raptor biologist um apply for apply 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 for funding less people apply than you think and if you just keep applying for funding you will get some and apply for gosh so my anthropology i'm an anthropologist so my falconry, a lot of my falconry has been funded by anthropology grants. 
So there is money out there to be had if you can find something academic with what you're passionate about. And then the falconry side, I have had a mentor everywhere that I've flown an eagle and it's made all the difference. So just don't try to just figure stuff out on your own. <laughs> find some good mentors. <laughs> Brilliant. Great, great advice. Yeah, absolutely. Right, Lauren. Well, uh, I think Ooh. we've. Uh, I don't want to keep you any longer. Um, this has been fascinating. I've I've absolutely loved talking to you. And uh, yeah, uh, thank Ooh. you very much for taking the time to chat to me. It's been brilliant. That was great. Thank you for having me. Ooh.